another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Kleber. This week we have the first case of 2020, which is FMX Food Merchants, Import Export Company Limited, and Commissioners for HMRC. And as you might well guess, the citation for this case, 2020 UKSC 1. And the case that we are going to be looking at this week is all about customs duty, which is a tax that is normally paid at the time that goods are imported. However, we will be looking at an exception to this rule, whereby HMRC can issue something called a post-clearance demand, so that the amount is paid at a later date. The company in question, FMX, imported 10 consignments of garlic way back in 2003 and 2004. They claimed that the garlic originated from Cambodia, which was important because it meant that it fell within the EU's version of something called the Generalised System of Preferences. That system basically allows for the reduction of tariffs for certain products that originate from developing countries like Cambodia in order to encourage growth. Unfortunately, problems arose when an investigation by the European Anti-Fraud Office concluded in 2007 that the garlic was actually from China, which is definitely not a developing country, and so not subject to a reduced tariff under the generalised system of preferences. This exposed FMX to a liability of more than £500,000 in unpaid import and anti-dumping taxes, and so in 2011 HMRC issued a post-clearance demand for that amount. That demand was contested by FMX who pointed to Article 221, Paragraph 3 of the previous version of the EU's Customs Code that was in force at the time. This established a three-year time limit for demands which had since expired. HMRC came back by instead looking at Article 221, Paragraph 4, which tells us that where the debt comes about because of some sort of activity that is liable to give rise to an action in criminal law, then, quote, the amount may, under the conditions set out in the provisions in force, be communicated to the debtor after the expiry of the three-year period, end quote. The first-tier tribunal found that even though FMX weren't directly involved in the fraud that was investigated by the anti-fraud office, the false import declarations were still potentially liable to give rise to criminal proceedings. Nevertheless, FMX were still successful because the tribunal also held that HMRC were not able to rely on Article 221, Paragraph 4 because the UK did not have any explicit provisions in force which extended the three-year time limit. When this question was appealed to the upper tribunal, it was HMRC that came up on top because there is no requirement on a member state to actually enact provisions setting out an alternative time limit to the standard three years we see in Article 221, Paragraph 3. The case then swung back again in the Court of Appeal where it was held that if there was no time limit, then this would violate the principle of legal certainty that is enshrined in EU law. With the case in the balance, the proceedings made their way to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick them up. The central point on which the decision in this case turns is the intention behind the enactment of Article 221, Paragraph 4, which extends the time limit in the context of potential criminal proceedings. According to a majority of the justices in the Supreme Court, the reason that the EU decided to do this was that it preserved the integrity of the criminal legal process and separated it out from the general requirement of a member state to communicate a post-clearance demand 
to a company that owed money. Given that these two things are separate, the disapplication of the standard time limit does not necessarily imply that an alternative must be designated in its stead. So far so good for HMRC, but the majority were also cognizant of the possibility that this would potentially allow the government to go after unpaid taxes or duties without any time limit whatsoever. As we mentioned earlier on in the episode, the problem with this was that it potentially undermined the fundamental principle of legal certainty in EU law. While the justices accepted that this was an issue, there was a way to get around it by looking to EU law. Throughout a number of cases that have appeared before the European Court of Justice over the years, it has consistently been held that where it appears that some sort of legal action can be taken without any time limit whatsoever, then that grounding principle of legal certainty demands that the action be completed within what is deemed to be a reasonable time. The next obvious question to ask is whether HMRC had issued their post-clearance demand to FMX within a reasonable time, and it was held that on the facts of the case, they had indeed done so. That was the decision of the majority in this case, and while Lady Arden joined that majority in finding in favour of HMRC, her reasons for doing so were quite different, and therefore worth spending a moment discussing further. While she agrees that Article 221 Paragraph 4 does not require a member state to then go ahead and enact their own time limit outside of the standard three years, she does see this as a deference to national law. In other words, whereas the majority looked to EU cases such as Sanders and Commission from 2004 to establish that HMRC must issue a demand within a reasonable time, Lady Arden stated that it was instead necessary to look to UK law on this subject. In practical terms, this makes precious little difference because public law would require HMRC to act within a reasonable time anyway. But I think that this is still an interesting distinction to draw because it forces us to ask what should happen when there is a gap in EU law that needs to be filled. There are weaknesses in the approach that was taken by Lady Arden, as it would have required a disapplication of Section 37.2a of the Limitation Act 1980, which would normally preclude the use of the reasonable time limit in the context of customs debts. Nevertheless, I find this much more satisfying than the view of the majority, who leave the question to be answered by a much more vague appeal to core principles that already exist in EU law. Such principles are important, and in no way am I arguing against greater legal certainty, but they should be used to assist in the interpretation of existing law, and not to fill in the gaps where the EU has chosen not to legislate. The view of the majority actually inadvertently mitigates against other principles of EU law, such as subsidiarity, which is the idea that the EU should only legislate where it is necessary to do so, and that otherwise enactments should be made by local and national governments that are closer to the EU citizen. Furthermore, if certainty really is the goal, then it is always better to rely on enacted legislation over and above principles that rely on piecing together a strand of jurisprudence from case law over a number of years. Before we finish, one of the other things that is worth discussing is how Brexit will impact on decisions like this in the future. Obviously, this case dates back many years and is not affected whatsoever, but in the future, the EU regulation will not have greater status than domestic law because of its retained status. 
a pattern of decisions that more closely follow the reasoning of Lady Arden, is much more likely, but it will also be interesting to see if some of these underlying principles make it across. On the one hand, they are not written down anywhere, and it seems more apt to rely on the principles that underpin UK law, given their existing prominence in our common law system. On the other hand, it is perfectly feasible to conclude that those principles are inherent in the legislation and the case law that will be used to assist UK judges post-Brexit, so they can still be relied on as part of the broader legal system. I would imagine that the latter is much more likely, but it is by no means a guarantee. Finally, one other interesting question is whether this case would have come up at all if the UK had already left the EU. After all, the proceedings only came about following a successful investigation by the European Anti-Fraud Office. Even after the end of the transition period, the office will still be able to initiate investigations into goings-on that occurred before that date, which looks to be 31st of December 2020 as things stand, but after that point, we will very much be on our own. Of course, we won't be completely on our own because HMRC is already adept at investigating tax fraud, but not having access to the expertise and resources of the European office will be a significant loss. The hope must be that in the same way that the UK hopes to maintain a positive and productive trade relationship with our European partners, the same can be said across a range of other areas as well. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Remember, if you want to find out about, more about me or my work, then visit the website at uklawweekly.com. In the meantime, I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye! bye.